Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we'll hear the thoughts, politics, and songs of San Francisco mayoral candidate Francisco Herrera as he speaks to us about the Francisco for Mayor campaign. We also connect with Sagnite Salazar, who discusses the upcoming historic celebration of the Chicana Moratorium. It's a 36th annual Chicana Moratorium in Oakland, and this year's theme is Chicanas for Third World Liberation, One Land, One Struggle. And Tara Dorabji will interview author Juan Alvarado Valdivia about his coming of age and surviving cancer memoir called Cancerlandia. And as always, we bring you Musica Latina. Listen and enjoy. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My guest today is Francisco Herrera. We usually have him as a guest because he's such a marvelous musician and composer and always has a musical comment on almost every subject. But today he's come to us as the official Green Party candidate for the mayor of San Francisco. Bienvenidos, Francisco Herrera. Gracias, Nina. Happy to be here with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Did you bring a song? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, a little bit of our, our song that we're working with Greg. You know Greg Landau, of course, our co-author and teammate. So we've been working on actually refurbishing an older song for our campaign. It's the people who make the difference. It's the people who make the difference Hacemos un hermoso jardín And it's the friendships made in the struggle Son razones pa vivir Son razones pa vivir And we turn that into for the mayor's campaign. It's the people who make the difference, the soul of the neighborhood. It's the people working in struggle, wisdom for the common good. song. <laughs> Wonderful song. So your campaign is called the People's Campaign. It's a coalition of the whole city, and you're running on a platform with eight points. Yes. Let's talk about those eight points, and if you burst into song on any subject <laughs> along the way, that's welcome and allowed. Eso mero. We could do this one. Oh, Pueblo, pueblo, mm. ah, 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 canta tu canción. Hey, hey. Oh, 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 pueblo, pueblo. Canta 
tu canción Vivienda, housing We all are struggling for We won't accept displacement no more Organizing to stay and flourish In San Francisco And the whole Bay Area Oh, oh, oh Pueblo, pueblo It's education like Safe City, call it mm -hmm. Ah, ah, ah Canta tu canción Affordability like a free muni Cause it ain't free We already paid for it Ah, ah, ah Canta tu canción Access to health Access to nourishment Good parks Culture and the arts Uh-huh We can all make it happen If we organize If we register and vote But don't stop there mm. Mm. Canta tu canción been listening to Francisco Herrera, composer, musician, activist, and the official Green Party candidate for mayor of San Francisco, and one of the organizers of the People's Campaign Net, a citywide coalition to put people before profits. Yes, Nina, and people can go to either of the pages, franciscoformayor.com or peoplescampaign.net. And the idea behind this campaign is that we decided to get the circus out of politics with all due respect to real circus workers and get the money out of politics. And let's do real politics. And for us, politics is a noble act that people get involved in to negotiate the common good, right? To negotiate how can we live together? How can we flourish? How can we create healthy communities? And so that's why we decided this cannot be your typical little circus election where it's about winning or losing, about throwing mud and blah, 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 blah. The whole entertainment that has happened and where you dumb down everything that has to do with your real life and it all becomes this little circus of individuals, divas competing. So what we set up is Francisco for Mayor which is really, it's not a protest campaign. It's not a symbolic campaign. It's a real campaign. We are setting ourselves to win and be mayor of San Francisco and put forth these eight points. But we've created peoplescampaign.net because we intend to push and win these eight, which will end up being 10 points, whether I'm in the office of mayor or not. These are points that we're going to take. We're creating a 12-year plan in which we will win these points that have to do with affordability, affordability, affordability. And you're talking about affordability of housing as the number one issue. The number one issue just in the Mission District alone, Nina, just in the Mission District in the last three years, 10,000 people have been evicted, displaced, many of whom have actually gotten ill, some of whom have actually died, and the gentrification has actually created at least two murders in the confrontation 
with police that people did not have to die. Are you referring to Alex Nieto? I'm referring exactly to Alex Nieto, a person with an Anglo accent, clearly calling, saying, uh, there's a Latino man here, and I'm very afraid because it looks like he has a gun. At least that's what's been said that was said. No, from 75 feet, police officers shooting their weapons at a man who was having lunch. From 75 feet, 59 bullets to his body. From the polarization that's happened through this housing issue? Sure. There's a whole belligerent attitude that has come. There's always been movement, as you know, Nina, as we all know. There's always been movement and flow. That's what's been the beauty of San Francisco and the Bay Area. There's always been movement. But because the corporations have come in with such a might makes right, and in this sense, might being I have millions and millions of dollars to throw around, that attitude has made these workers that have come in with a certain belligerent desprecio. How do we say desprecio? Looking down upon? Yeah, kind of a disdain. Yeah, that's disdain. a Disdain. You know, who are these Indians that live here? Would you come and shut them up? You know, it's this time and it's 11. It happened to Roberto Hernandez, born and raised in San Francisco. He's having a party at his house. It happened to a group of Samoan brothers living up Noe Valley area that have been there for 60 years and they're having this whole attitude of, I'm here and you guys are less than I am. And so that has created a real heavy tension that has led to that. But these mysterious fires have also killed an Arab girl and her father on 24th and Folsom. Another person died in a fire. Now, these mysterious fires are pretty much connected to this housing question again, Mm -hmm. right? Because burn down the property, get the insurance Mm -hmm. money, and then better yet, you can build luxury housing for many. Yeah, it's, it's kind of structural avarice, you know, that has been set up. You guys come in with all your money. And that's where, for me, it's like might does not make right. Just like free speech does not mean you have the right to go into a theater and yell fire. It does not give you the right because you have a Maserati that runs 150 miles an hour to go down Market Street in the middle of the busiest afternoon at 150 miles an hour. Well, the same thing. If you have $20 billion, it does not give you the right to come into a neighborhood and completely destroy the fabric of the community, displace elderly children. It does not give you that right. So the elections are coming up, and the most important dates are the ballot mail. That's October 7th, right? You yes, want to talk that's about right. that? Yeah. So this campaign is really about informing people as well as we go along. Politics is about protecting the common good. Politics is about, okay, you've got this much. Let's negotiate all together. So to do that, one of the mechanisms we have is elections. And this election really starts October 7th or the 5th. Around those dates is when people will be receiving their vote by mail ballots. And so you've got a whole month to reflect, to think, to write, read through the ballot measures, the mayoral campaign, of course, vote for Francisco Herrera and all that stuff. But November 3rd is the actual election day. Tuesday, November 3rd is the actual election. So you've got almost a month. Let's go through these eight points. Maybe we should alternate. Affordable housing for all. Accelerate affordable housing construction without building higher than four stories. Mm -hmm. 40 feet approximately. 
despite wrongful evictions and moratorium on speculative development. Actually, I'll stop you there because that point is already a ballot measure. It's Proposition I, as in I love San Francisco, I love the mission. And Proposition I, what it will do, that's the heart really of our campaign. It'll stop the construction of luxury housing projects and it'll give those 18 months for the city, for us together to plan on housing for working people that make between 30 and 90,000 a year. So that's this point. Fund the small sites acquisition program Mm -hmm. and other initiatives to protect existing affordable housing. That's correct. So point two. Point two, it's a general point that says budget to prioritize people and neighborhoods. So fully fund human services and tenant legal protections. Develop equitable arts budget to protect San Francisco's unique cultural heritage. Include things like SF optic fiber, which will give faster internet connections at a lower cost. In other words, we, the city, will control the fiber optics and we can get it at a lower price to every home the way Chattanooga has done, where every home now has access to fiber optics, which is cleaner than Wi-Fi and it doesn't disorient birds and bees. And you're not having to pay it out to some corporation. It's included as part of your city taxes. And number three, safe streets and a stronger Muni. Mm -hmm. We're going to improve funding for Muni to equitably fund improvements that lead the nation in what is called Vision Zero, which end all traffic fatalities by 2024. You know, the average person that's run over by a car is 77 years of age. So this has really become a real serious situation, especially in a city like San Francisco, where it's much more apt for walking, for bus, for biking. And so one of our goals is to reduce the amount of traffic uh, and apply measures like in Mexico City, Paris, and other cities where they've done really a, a good effort at getting more pedestrian, more bicycles, and less cars. And for the Muni, really, this Google bus thing has really created a division among working class people, you know, who gets to have the little fancy little bus with the IT. Apart from that, they really get in the way very much of a hassle and a nuisance. What we have to do is improve transportation for everybody and not just for a group of workers over another group of workers. Right to public education, number four. Yeah, so that's good because there we already have a kickstart that City College has been saved. City College is wide open for people to sign up. As a matter of fact, I have a class in the fall that I'm going to be giving there. But also, not just save City College and provide opportunities for 21st century learning, but also really help the school district because right now, because of the housing crisis, there's at least 300 teachers that are missing in San Francisco School District because they cannot afford to live in San Francisco. So we have to work on that piece of supporting the educational process. And what is this class you're going to be teaching at City College? I'm going to be uh, teaching to create a sister of the labor course, but in Spanish. So we're going to be working with Bill Shield, Room 108. We're going to be combining Spanish-speaking theater with the Colectiva de Mujeres, a women's cooperative, and the songwriting part of it, which I will lead. The songwriting will create a labor chorus in Spanish. Oh, how exciting. Well, I hope you'll come and sing those songs for us here at La Raza Chronicles. (laughs) And then number five, improve public health. Yes, and this area is really improving access to public health, like Healthy San Francisco for All, but it also includes the area which is the working on living wage issues. It really has to do, how do we reduce the stress that has been created by this runaway market that has really created upheaval for the whole Bay Area? 
And so we got to really focus on how do we restrain this bull that's running around beating everyone up and create a healthy form of life in the community. So it's both access to health and the community-wide sense of public health. Yeah, it sounds like quality of life issues. Quality of life, yes. And number six, permanent status for immigrants. Mm-hmm. Yes, that has to do very much with the sanctuary ordinance. You know, Donald Trump really, really created a very horrible situation of danger. Ordinances of, of sanctuary, Nina, are created because there's a war in Mexico. The, the violence in El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras is horrific. It is, I cannot use a worse word because this is radio, of how bad of the beheadings, the killings, the tortures that are going on right now as we speak. People are fleeing real, real war. And for Donald Trump to be irresponsible like that, to be saying that he's going to destroy city ordinances, and for Dianne Feinstein and the Democrats to be dancing to the tune of Donald Trump is just beyond words, the level of irresponsibility. So we've taken a stand saying, no, 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 let's get this right. This killing in San Francisco, it should not be manipulated. What really Donald Trump should be asking, what is a federal agent's firearm doing wrapped up in a t-shirt or however it was laying on the streets of the Embarcadero San Francisco. Who is that agent? Who is that irresponsible agent who left a firearm? But far away from that, the point that they manipulated this issue to attack 320 cities San Francisco saying, no, we will not play this horrific game that you're playing irresponsibly, playing with the lives of human beings. So we're very strong that sanctuary and the ordinance, which does very little, and it does nothing to protect felons, as a matter of fact, but it does a little bit to protect the life of people who are fleeing war as they are in Mexico, Central America. So that's a key piece. And the city, of course, was going to do anything to help the economic engine of San Francisco, which is immigrant communities, find a way to citizenship and a way to residency. Well, we're running out of time, so I want to remind people again that they're going to be receiving ballots between October 5th and 7th. Yes. And that the official voting day is November 3rd. And we've been talking to Francisco Herrera, who's running for mayor on the official Green Party. And as we go out, could you sing us your song again? I'm going to go with Pueblo Pueblo right now. Because it's time to raise our voice. Stop, stop mm, the displacement. Mm, work mm, for transformation now. Oh, oh. choice of the future cause the future ain't about flying cars Mm. it's about you and I getting together talking and chatting and finding a way of love and peace and harmony Pueblo, pueblo. 
Francisco Herrera, running for mayor of San Francisco. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much. The love is in the detail. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Right now we are in August, close to the end of the month. So we are going to talk what we talk about every year, which is a really important commemoration. We're talking about Chicana Moratorium. Chicana Moratorium, most folks think of Ruben Salazar, think of LA. They think about an important history, but they don't think about how it affects us present day and necessarily about the amazing way the Bay Area has been holding down this tradition for many, many years now. I have on the line with me someone who's been crucial to making this all happen year after year. Sagnite, thank you so much. Sagnite Salazar has been working on the Chicana Moratorium event and also all the organizing that happens throughout the year to inspire and engage young people around everything from gentrification, police brutality, understanding, knowing history. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me on. So why is this event something that you all have decided to keep going and remind people of the roots of this um, important commemoration? Right. So for Chicano Moratorium Coalition and the young people in Chicano Moratorium Coalition, this is not only a direct link to our roots and our formation as a group, but it's also an extremely important historical moment for Chicanos all over the United States. In 1970, over 30,000 Chicanos and other third world allies flooded the streets of L.A. to call an end to the U.S. imperialist war that was happening in Vietnam, and particularly to the fact that our folks were being put in disproportionate numbers in the front lines and dying in disproportionate numbers while we were also being the victims of attacks here in the United States whether that was militarization in our communities, police brutality, lack of resources like education, health care, jobs, housing, etc. And I think that back then we understood the fact that as third world communities, we, the Vietnamese people were not our enemies and the U.S. military, the U.S. imperialism, U.S. capitalism, those were our real enemies and that we couldn't fight or stand alongside and and watch this war continue and be part of it. So we were calling an end to that and trying to gain political power. Some of our mentors, our elders, and the folks who actually formed Chicano Moratorium Coalition out here in the Bay Area were part of some of the organizing work that led to the original Chicano Moratorium Day, August 29, 1970, and came out here. And one of the things that they believed is that Young people were crucial to to the movement, so they started developing and organizing young people out here in the Bay Area, particularly around anti-immigrant issues, issues that were impacting the migrant community out here, and also around the school to prison pipeline. And Prop 21 and Prop 187 were some of our first campaigns, and we've continued that work ever since. So this is actually our 36th annual Chicana Moratorium Day. We started in San Francisco at Dolores Park, and due to gentrification, and the ways that um, our communities are pushed out, it became pretty inaccessible and not geared towards our community holding it down in, in San Francisco Dolores Park. And a lot of the organizers actually are based out here in Oakland. So we moved Chicano Moratorium out here to Oakland to San Antonio Park, which actually has a long history with Chicano Moratorium. Prior to 
August 29, 1970, in East L.A., uh, there was a march out here in Oakland, uh, one of the original Chicano moratorium days prior to the big one that was from Jingletown to San Antonio Park, calling out the very same things and demanding an end to the Vietnam War. And so we're bringing it back to San Antonio Park for the fourth year in a row. And this year's theme is Chicanos for Third World Liberation, one that we struggle to highlight the fact that we are still in connection with our third world communities fighting against that imperialism that impacts all of our communities, both here in the United States and abroad. That's the voice of Sagnite Salazar. She's a longtime organizer of the Chicana Moratorium Coalition, which brings together a ton of people working to make this a reality. And something that's really beautiful about it, it's a really diverse group in age, which is not always what you see. And there are a lot of young people that are very dedicated to make this happen. And why don't you tell us about some of the different groups that come together and what people can experience when they actually show up and get to be a part of this important day? Yeah, it's a very beautiful, long day where we not only commemorate, but reinvigorate some of the solidarity work that happens, our struggles. And it's kind of a celebration of the year's work, the work around police brutality, around gentrification, around militarization, around fighting for more uh, resources and power for our communities. And so we start off the day in the morning at 5 a.m. at San Antonio Park with a huge sunrise, which is a sunrise held with some of our elders, including some elders that were a part of the original Chicana Moratorium in East L.A. in 1970. And um, we, we do that sunrise to lay down prayers for the continued work. And from there, we have Danzantes Aztecas this year hosted by Danza Cuatonal in Oakland, but Danzantes from all over the Bay come together to put down blessings for the year, for the work, for the day. Uh, and so it's a beautiful circle of, of dancers laying down that traditional prayer. And it's followed by an all-day festival from 12 to 5 p.m. where we have different local artists. We have organizers and especially folks from our Third World Resistance Coalition who are coming to speak on issues around Palestine, issues around Philippines, issues around gentrification, issues around Black resistance and Black power, and, you know, also struggles here in the streets of Oakland and in the streets of similar communities like Oakland and the Bay Area. Um, we have everything from Black Panthers coming to speak on, on um, some of the struggles around the farm workers to folks coming to talk about the, the abolitionist fight to abolish prisons. And so we have some very powerful speakers that you can expect on stage. All the while, there's amazing artists and organizations providing some of that art and resources for our community. We're going to have a mobile clinic. We're going to have free food for the community. We have activities for kids. And we have beautiful artists from all over the Bay Area who come to share their art, sell their art, and, uh, you know, just kind of close off that beautiful day in that way. That's a Chicana moratorium we're talking about. For me, what's so amazing about this event is how it really addresses all the intersections. It's talking about how all these different struggles are really connected. And I think last year, one of the main themes was around police brutality and black-brown unity, or maybe that was even the year before, and gentrification. Those are things that everyone here is affected by, everyone's impacted. So it's a really good time to learn about how different people have tackled this and different tactics and learn and also celebrate victories and just remember that there's so much beauty in resistance. So give folks again the details. Yeah, so it is 
Sunday, August 30th. We always hold it the last Sunday of August, and it is starting at 5 a.m. at San Antonio Park with our sunrise from 10 to 12, Aztec Dancers. From 12 to 5, we have our festival with free food, kids, vendors, and local artists. This year we have La Ceiba, Duce Eclipse, Aguacero, Fabi Estrella, Fronterizas. We have a live cumbia, a couple live cumbia bands coming through and uh, playing. And the park is on 18th and Foothill in Oakland. And actually also want to invite folks just to kind of prep folks for the day and to really be able to, to sit and have conversation around how the Chicano moratorium is connected to this anti-imperialist third world struggle. We, we want to um, do a little bit of education with some of our elders and then also some of our current organizers. It's a jam-packed day. There's going to be a lot of fun things for people to plug in in different ways. So what are some of the talks or speakers that are going to be there and what are they going to address? Yeah, so this year our theme again is Chicanas for Third World Liberation, One Man, One Struggle. And we've been doing a lot of uh, third world resistance work with a coalition of different organizations representing anti-imperialist third world communities. And, you know, we are continuing the fight against Urban Shield, which is one of our large fights that we're getting into this year. Urban Shield, we were able to work to kick Urban Shield out of Oakland Marriott last year. But this year it's in Pleasanton. And so we're still working to get Urban Shield, which is a SWAT training, which trains police and military personnel all over the nation, but also internationally. They train people from the Philippines, from Israel, and a few other different places. They uh, show them new military weaponry and tactics that are usually used to suppress movements. And, you know, we see it in in the ways that sometimes in East Oakland you have military tanks roaming the streets of East Oakland. So we want to highlight some of these struggles and how these struggles are connected both around the repression around police brutality and how that's connected to the larger fight against militarism in prisons. So you can expect to hear some amazing folks on stage that are talking about the current campaigns and struggles that are connected to this fight against imperialism. And yeah, I just hope that folks are able to come through and, and join that day at any point that we're there, whether that's the sunrise at 5 a.m., the dance from 10 to 12, or the festival between 12 and 5. Sagnite, if people are listening and they really are looking forward to the event, but they want to help out, they want to be a part of it, they don't just want to show up, how can people link up to all the great organizing happening throughout the year? Yeah, so the day of, we definitely want to connect young people and families to the work that we're doing. So we'll have a table there and um, getting folks signed up to, to get connected to the work. We especially want to link up with young people as our elders taught us. Young people are crucial to the movement. So we do a lot of work to both educate young people around their histories and struggles, reconnecting them to their traditions and, and training them up to fight the good fight. But also, if, if folks um, want to link up and can't come through that day, you get, you guys can hit us up. Our address is chicanamoratorium at gmail.com, and that's X-I-C-A-N-A, moratorium at gmail.com, to get more information and to link up with some of the organizers out here. So if people want to share the event and they want to invite all their friends... Is there a way to find the event anywhere? Is it on Facebook? Yes, it is on Facebook. Our Facebook event page is 36th Annual Chicana Moratorium Day. So they can look up 36th Annual 
Chicana More Time Day, and it's again with an XI, reconnecting us to that uh, name that came about in 1992 for the quincentennial where our folks wanted to reconnect to indigenous values and understanding that identity is a crucial thing for our folks. Um, so it's X-I-C-A-N-A, 36th Annual Chicana Mortarium Day. Muchísimas gracias. I've had the pleasure to speak with Sagnite Salazar. She is a longtime organizer here in the Bay Area, and she is part of the Chicana Moratorium Coalition that works every year to make this event happen, but also works throughout the year to address all the many issues affecting our communities, and we are lucky to have them here. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Up next on La Raza Chronicles, Tora Dorabji catches up with Juan Alvarado Valdivia and discusses his debut memoir, Cancerlandia. Humorous and brutally honest, Juan chronicles his story, overcoming cancer and confronting alcoholism. We now go to that interview. You are tuned into La Raza Chronicles on KPFA. I'm Tara Darabji. Today we are in conversation with Juan Alvarado Valdivia, author of Cancerlandia, his debut memoir. Diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma just three weeks after his 30th birthday, Juan struggles to live a normal life, continuing on to grad school and biking to chemotherapy while listening to heavy metal. Comic and unsparing, Cancerlandia chronicles Juan's journey fighting to survive cancer and his own self-destructive spirit. Juan, welcome to KPFA. Thank you very much for having me here. Yeah, so glad to have you in studio. Congratulations on the publication of Cancerlandia. Thank you very much. How many years were you working on it? Um, Probably about four and a half. I was trying to do some calculations on it on the way over here. And I started August 2009. And I think, I mean, it's never finished. I mean, I looked at the book now. I'm like, oh, I wish I could edit some parts out. But I think about like four and a half years, like December 2013, around there is when I said, all right, you know, I'm kind of done with this. And it's out, it's birth, it's here, it's in our hands. And uh, I opened it up, and on the first page, it starts out with you dressed as a Catholic Mm schoolgirl, throwing down some drinks on your 30th birthday. My mom helped me uh, pick out that outfit, too. And talk to us a little bit about where you were at at that stage. At that stage, you didn't know yet that you had cancer. Right. I had a strong suspicion that I did. That was one of the chapters that was cut out from the book. I used to have like a eight, nine page chapter, which I just kind of detail like the 10 months leading up to being diagnosed, in which I knew that there was something physically off about my body. And there were whispers. That's how I thought of it. Like there are these cancer whispers around me. But yeah, at that point, I was three, three weeks away from from getting diagnosed. But I was about certain that something was was really wrong with me. But of course, I mean, until you get like that sort of stamp of not approval, but like stamp of like, you have cancer, like, you just don't ever want to accept that. So, yeah. So you dressed up as a Catholic schoolgirl? Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's the first time I ever celebrated like any of my birthdays. And um, I thought it'd be fun. Yeah. I don't know. I probably have some sort of like secret history of cross-dressing or something like that. But <laughs> And after you got the diagnosis, obviously that's a huge life-shifting, altering, shaking event. You asked the question why. Mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people go through when 
they get diagnosed with a serious illness. And what were some of the thoughts spinning through your head? I mean, I think it's natural for anyone to to think why. And um, I mean, I think it's super nat- it's not supernatural, but like it's 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 so easy to to go down that road. I think since I'd I'd been kind of prepped for it, I'd had like these sort of like ten months where it's just kind of gradually. I got to this like sort of sense where like, yeah, you know, I, I think I do have lymphoma because my first doctor had, had mentioned that. So I was prepared when, I mean, I guess as, as much as you can be prepared for something like that. So I had some time to sort of think it through, I think. And I mean, it's it's still just sort of like this mystery to me simply because, and I've, I've read a lot more literature since, since I wrote the memoir um, or ever, even since it's been published where, yeah, I mean, the science tells you that anyone, you know, can I, I mean I believe like anyone can can contract like cancer and I mean what was what was unusual about it for me was that there wasn't any history in my family so I think that's why I was like really resistant towards accepting it but yeah with the why I, I it's just this big question mark I guess for me and I I try to just keep it to that point because otherwise I just feel like I'm opening a can of of worms as far as like well you know if there is a god and why why would he she or it do this like that's that doesn't seem like such a nice thing so i've just kind of kept it at this kind of like shrug my shoulders well that happened and just move on and try to make the best of it and i definitely related to a lot of I think, you know, just, you I mean, you talked about your healthy lifestyle and biking and you eat well, and then you're like, oh my God, was it my Nalgene water bottle, you know? And I think it's really hard with something like that because, you know, there's so many possibilities, but with cancer, you can never really point that line. Yeah. Or that finger. And... I mean, one of the things about your memoir that really struck me is it's almost sort of a coming of age in terms of like moving fully into your adulthood. You're dealing with alcoholism, anger, relationships, you know, grad school. And then in the middle of it, you have this, you also have to face your own potential mortality right in the midst. Did facing sort of death cause you to look at the future in a new way? That's such a great question. Um, dear God. I mean, if I was, if I was like, why Tara, why that one? Why? <laughs> if I was looking out over like a canyon or if I was like sitting by like some pool and she's like staring off at the sky, I could probably sit and ruminate on that question for like an hour. Um, not that I'd probably be able to compose anything eloquent from it, but um, I think it has. Um, I mean, now, I mean, it's, it's not like you ever forget that something like that happened to you. And I mean, there's moments where I catch myself and I'm like, wow, like, the Warriors, for example, like it's a sports victory. I had nothing to do with that. But, you know, the Warriors like just won their first championship since before I was born. And there was a moment where I was there celebrating with a bunch of people in Oakland and I just sort of stepped back and I was like, dude, like if you didn't get treatment, you wouldn't be here. So that's nice when I remember, you know, I, I feel like I have a, a greater sense of just appreciation and gratitude when things are going well, because things aren't always going well all the time. But um, as long as you're in the game, you know, that's uh, that's key, obviously. So in terms of like looking towards the future, I mean, I guess this sounds like really cliche, but sometimes I try to like, all right, you know, just live for the present because this is all that we have. And so, I mean, I think I already had those thoughts before, but now it's like I physically sort of sat with this life-threatening disease and that just shapes 
your, your train of thought a little bit more. And it's now it's like, now I really carnally understand what it means to like, this is all we have. Like there's, theoretically, there's no future. Like this, we just have a conglomerate of present moments that are just piling upon each other. And who knows when this is, when this ride is going to end. So I, sometimes I've thought about like, well, what if I lived, you know, this year like I was going to die? I've had those thoughts and I thought, you know, that would be good. But then I'd probably like, you know, leave my job. I don't think I'd want to rob a bank, but, you know, whatever savings I have, like, all right, you know, like, like let's go and just see everything because this is, we don't have anything that we can really depend on, you know. I haven't gone there yet, but theoretically I'm like, sure, that sounds like a sound idea. So, I mean, I think it's probably changed in that sense. I just haven't acted upon it all that much. <laughs> Can we hear a bit of Cancerlandia? Sure, yeah. I'll read a little, a minute um, excerpt. This is towards the front of the, this is towards the beginning of the book. Uh, this is right after I got diagnosed. I think it's self-evident what I'm talking about here. I don't have to give any background, but here we go. I still remember I sh a shower I took a few days after I was diagnosed. Pale morning sunlight streamed through the bathroom window while I stepped into the tub. When the warm water hit my bare chest, I coiled in pain. Three red scratches about an inch and a half long ran down my chest. I furrowed my brows while I studied them, then lifted my right hand. My fingernails, since I constantly chewed them, were short. While the shower fogged up, the pale sunlight felt suffused with eeriness. For a few seconds, I seriously considered if a demon had visited me in my sleep to leave those claw marks. Maybe I had developed lymphoma because someone had laid a curse on me. After I shifted my index, middle, and ring fingers into a rake to press onto the scratches, I told myself no. I had evidently dreamt that my disease, Mr. Hodgkins, was perched behind my chest plate. I could feel some tightness, some discomfort there, and I had simply tried to claw him out in my sleep. There were no such things as demons, and who would put a curse on me? But when I stepped out of the shower to finish drying off, I felt a flash of panic when I looked over at the fogged-up mirror, my smudgy reflection, and thought it reflected a dark figure walking toward me through the fog. That's the voice of Juan Alvarado Valdivia. He is a Peruvian-American writer um, living here in Oakland, reading from his debut memoir, Cancerlandia. And Juan, in your memoir, one of the things you do is actually personify your disease. You invent him as a character, Mr. Hodgkins. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, it was a completely natural sort of thing. Like, I just felt like, I think this is probably where being like agnostic atheist totally came into play for me and, and also having a, a bit of a creative mind where like I felt like I needed to have some sort of adversary. And so for me, it just kind of felt... Um, it probably in, in some sense was useful for me to imaginatively give myself some sort of like foe to overcome. Um, and I just decided to just have some sort of fun with it, especially once I started to write my memoir. And then that's when um, Homeboy just kind of took a life of his own. You guys dance and tango in the memoir, no? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Something that I would never do well in real life. Yeah. Yeah, that was um, that was the first chapter that I, I wrote with him, and I'd already imagined him. I mean, there's a, there's a chapter in the memoir in which um, I had breakfast with my friends Judy and Carlisle, and we we just sort of sat there and just kind of like 
riffed off of like what would Mr. Hodgkins look like, what would he do, he drinks dark coffee in the morning, that sort of thing. But that was like the first sort of like cinematic at least moment which I personified a scene with him. And that was like really like something that it was a daydream really that I had like in my head. I was it's based on this Louis Armstrong song called Someday. And yeah, I just I got obsessed with that song when I was in the lead up to um, transfu- into my transfusions. And I just literally played the song a couple times, and I just, that's what I saw. And so then I just kind of, that was an easy chapter to write, sort of, because I just was trying to write what I saw in my head. You, you talked about one of your mentors saying that when you write, it's sort of about the difficult things you have been done or put through. Um, writing it would allow you to let it go. Mm-hmm. Was that very much sort of a process of this memoir? I think, yeah, I would say so. I mean, if I were to put my put all my chips in on yes or no, I would definitely put my chips in on yes. I wouldn't even put it in the middle. Yes, um, especially when I started to write about you know my alcoholism and just sort of self destruction. Like, I mean, it certainly wasn't something I w- intended to to write in order to like heal myself. I just was trying to just put down all this sort of stuff that I'd done in my life and be honest, like brutally honest about it, and then. I think there was a process that that came from that and and that, yeah, I think I was able to sort of wedge some distance between myself and and be able to say, like, that's who I was before. That doesn't have to be who I am anymore. It is brutally honest. There's moments I was like, no, Juan, you did it. Oh, God, you did. Yes. So have, I mean, I know that it's, you know, just coming out now, it's hit the Kindle, has your community family started reading it yet? Yeah. Um, Have the I, parents read it yet? My mom's reading oh it my, as, as we speak. Oh, God, mom is reading it yeah. as we speak. Ugh. My mom's birthday was on Sunday, and mm. my wife Maria's birthday is the day before. So we were in Fremont um, all weekend. And that was when I, when I gave my parents a copy of the book, too. So, like, the night before my mom's birthday, she started to read my memoir. And um, that was, like, the first time when I, I was just kind of hovering past her. She was, like, on the couch. Oh, I have, God, you were there. I have a picture. She was reading it. And, like, my dad was sitting beside her. He was watching TV. And I just, I, I felt, like, this, like, sort of seriousness. I'm like, oh, my God, she's reading the book. And I, I took a picture of her because I'm like, that's a big moment for me. I'm like, I'm alive, they're alive, there's my book in my mom's hands. Like that's, in some in some ways, like this is just a, a pristinely awesome moment, right? But my mom, like I could just tell, even from like the backside of her, that she was sad and I was like, oh, mom. And so I had warned her before. I'd warned her like a cute few what weeks What was before. the warning? What was the warning label that you put on this for mama? <laughs> I had told her, I was like, mom, they're, you know, this isn't, you know, I know that you're really proud. She's been on Facebook a lot. She's like, my son, I love you so much. And your book is out. This is so great. And like, that's awesome, right? But I've told my mom, I'm like, mom, it's not one of those, like, you know, this isn't one of those really cheerful, wonderful books. Even though I'm alive and, and in a lot of ways, it's, it's, a, it's a great ending, but maybe not how the book ends. But I wonder, I'm like, there are some things in that book. What's the most horrifying part? The most horrifying part? <laughs> that mom's going to read, yeah. Oh, definitely. I th- let's see. Either the drunk bicycling in the city or probably the, the prostitute scene yeah. in Thailand. That's going to be the <laughs> one where she's going to be like, Ay, Juanito, ¿por qué? ¿Por qué? <laughs> Mi hijo. Yeah. ¿Qué estás so, haciendo? Yeah. Pues. <laughs> Exacto. She's, she's almost there. She, she got up to page 23, the, the end of uh, Saturday night, and she was just kind of sad, and I 
hugged her and patted her on, on the back sometimes. I told her, I was like, Mom, if this is too hard for you, you don't have to read it. And, you know, it's just, just because I gave you the book doesn't mean you have to, but especially the night before your birthday. But, yeah, so she's reading it. So it's been interesting. I've had coworkers who have been, like, sort of, on Friday I had a coworker, like, tell me that she's, oh, I've been reading your book. And I was like, who told you? Because I've been kind of tight-lipped about it at work. But, yeah, so that's been interesting. Some, you know, some people have read the book and they still talk to me. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm not such a bad person. So I'm talking to you right now, Juan. I got I through the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we're going to do it and put it on the radio, homeboy. And you have some readings coming up too, right? Correcto. So you're doing the book release. When's that? Dates, times, people can hit you up all over here in the Bay, right? Yeah. Book release, like by um, like when it's going to officially be released, or no, no, you're doing a reading at Galleria. Mm-hmm. I saw Modern Times. Yeah. You're hitting the whole, yeah. So if people ah. want to come out and meet you. After- Certainly, yeah. Um, so my book launch party. Get it signed, you know. I I guess I'm gonna have to start carrying a pen around. That's um, right. Oh yeah, yeah. I hope I don't stab myself. But so I have a book launch party at Galleria de la Raza. It's gonna be on Thursday, September 17th, a uh, week before on. I'm having a reading um, in Sausalito for the Why There Are Words reading series. And that's, I think, September 10th. I should know this. I should have had like a list. Do you have it all on your website? Or it's all where? on my website. So give us your website. So the website is uh, com. Kind of long, sorry. but Give it to us one more time. It's uh, com. Yeah, so I got a couple readings lined up coming up in... Um, September and October. Nice. And then um, I want to hear another section. Sure. Give us, give us, give us another taste of Cancerlandia. I think one of the things. I mean, it's actually the read went. It's a really, it's a hefty autobiography, but it goes pretty quick. And I think one of the things I loved was just that it's all little vignettes. Mm-hmm. So I just really enjoyed sort of your strong voice in it and the strong narration and then that you just kind of flip through and it's, you know, two pages, three pages, cutting, comical, and then sometimes you just cry. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I figured like the vignettes, I mean, I like when I read books and like there's like just, like I'm reading Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and some of those chapters are like 30 pages long and I'm like, why didn't you give like a section break so I could just naturally cut it off here? But (laughs) not that, you know, people should you know, compose their books like this, but I just kind of like the little conglomerate sort of narrative. I think it works. I mean, we're used to like nuggets of information, so everything's like two to three pages, and I'm like, okay. But there you go. Yeah. yeah. It's totally postmodern. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to read this small little chapter, I think it's a good little nugget, called A Moonlight Serenade. Cue the sound. Track the film camera back, a bit faster than my pace. There I am, in focus, in the middle of the wide-angle frame, Wearing a black pea coat, gray slacks, and the loafers I wore to work. It's five o'clock, Thursday evening, downtown San Francisco, corner of Market and Montgomery Streets. Watch as I part through the crowd funneling past me into the underground tunnels. Now see them through my point of view, a mass of silhouetted figures bathed in golden light, the sun setting behind them past the hills. This is my life, I think to myself, while I listen to the timeless, lilting melody from Glenn Miller and his big band orchestra through my headphones. This is the world I'm still a part of. Now switch to a close-up of my clean-shaven face as the camera continues to track backward. My hair, in its rebirth, is growing again. A grin comes over me. If it weren't for my treatment, I might not have seen this. 
On most occasions, I would have probably felt annoyed to walk against wave upon wave of humanity, hurrying to pile into crowded trains from their tiny cubicles. But I feel grace to be among them as they brush past me, chirping into their phones, texting while walking, marching with expressionless faces, muffling the world around them with music playing from their headphones. In my world, in my head, curious thoughts begin to dawn as the sunlight fades on another day. I think to myself, someday I want to play and pass this song along to my children, to fill our home with this peaceful rhythm. I think to myself, I want to play this song when I leave this town. I want this song to play at my wedding. And someday, when my sun is setting, I want to sit and close my eyes and listen to this song fill my heart like the sound of the ocean's waves. As I walk down the sidewalk to meet a friend, I play the song again and again, stirring those images, those emotions. This is new for me, the desire to imagine a future. I play the song again and again and again. That's the voice of Juan Alvarado Valdivia reading from his debut memoir, Cancerlandia. And... Um, the future is here mm-hmm. <laughs> in the present. And, you know, through this whole process of surviving cancer, graduating from your MFA program, writing your memoir, really coming to grips with alcoholism, all of those things, like, who have you become? Um, apparently a published author, because I got this bad boy, you know, in my hands right now. But I've, I've become, um, I'm no longer like this, you know, wild little lion, or I don't know, I'm just coming out with metaphors here, I'm sorry, but um, I'm so tame, I guess. You've been tamed? To, I've been tamed. Domesticated? That too, yeah. You know, it's, it's good. I mean, I'm still crazy, I think. I think part of it, you know, writing this book was just kind of coming term, you know, I mean, looking at my life and then just kind of trying to make sense of what happened to me. I think what ultimately sort of happened was I just really came to have some sort of acceptance with myself and and to love myself in a way that I didn't before. And part of that is recognizing that, like, I'm just a crazy dude. And but, you know, there are certain ways that I can sort of divert that energy into something a bit more positive. So like, you know, writing a book instead of getting trashed, that sort of deal. So that's been nice kind of knowing that, like, there's always going to be this little flicker beneath my veneer now. Sure, I can still get you know crazy and wild in some ways, but but to just find a, a a more wholesome and a more productive way to just harness that energy. Like I think that's been sort of the the big change too. And then just having you know periodic moments where I'm just more accepting, I'm not accepting, but um, grateful for for what I have. Yeah, you know, I met my uh, my partner Maria, and that's been great. That's been um, such a huge. Um, sort of change in my life and I love who I am you know when I'm with her and and I think that so sort of like process of sort of accepting myself and all these little like quirks and then sort of glitches that I have has has also been a part of our relationship as well and yeah I'm just um and this is going to sound so sappy like maybe like a hallmark sort of thing but I'm a happier guy so far and and I mean I know that just because I'm cancer free right now doesn't mean that I will be forever so again that's like you know trying to just make the best of the present in in this crazy world that the world hasn't changed and I think I talk about that a lot in my book maybe not as much as I'd like to but sort of coming to grips with with 
all the just craziness and, and the and the horribleness that is out there and the, the humans do to one another. But it's just not taking that personally and sort of kind of accepting that. I mean, that's that's an ongoing sort of process. There's a lot of pain involved with that too. So, I mean, I think that's been another sort of change that's come about from this as well. So, Yeah, and I mean, I think throughout your memoir, you talk about the impact of humans on the environment and sort of your commitment as well to an environmental lifestyle and making the choice to bicycle and, you know, that whole sort of... Um, one of the questions you go through is even like around children and if you even want to bring them into a world like this and all of that. Um, this is probably an unfair question, but <laughs> I'll ask it anyways. If if you were to have children in the future, mm-hmm. how old would you want them to be before they read your memoir? Oh, my God. That's a... <laughs> Who asked that? Who asked Woo! that? <laughs> wow, that's a... Well, just, I mean, I have kids, you know, my kids are eight and like... Yeah. I was like working on my novel. My daughter like comes and was like reading over my shoulder, and I'm like, you know, if my I was like my novels, you're just not ready, you know. Yeah. It's like eight is too young for mommy's novels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a profound question. I don't know. I mean, we'd like to have a kid. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know like growing up like with my parents, I mean, there's just so much that I don't even know about my parents. I feel like I should. And and I know that I, I feel like unless you're going to be like chums and best friends with your kids, which I probably am like, no, that's just not the, the kind of relationship I would want to strike with, with my offspring. But I don't know. I, I feel like there's always just kind of like this distance of like, there's all this like past, there's all this life that I had before you came along, before I brought you into this world. And we're going to keep that, you know, beneath the glacier sort of thing. So like, but then... Of course, like at some point, kiddo's going to be like, but mom, I want to know like a little bit more about you. Tell me about this or all these sorts of things. So I don't know. I mean, I guess my my off the cuff sort of answer to that whack, awesome question, uh, I would say, I don't know, when they're a teenager, I could, you know, maybe be like, hey, did you know that your old man wrote a, you know, wrote a book? Okay. Oh, so that's that, well, that book that's on the bookshelf. I always thought about that, you know, dad or like, hey, you know, I already read that book when I was 12. You already knew all these things about me? I don't know. So I would probably say around that age. We'll yeah. keep Concertlandia in the vault until then, though. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on KPFA 1. And one more time, if people want to check you out, you're going to be reading a bunch in the Bay Area. You're going to be at Galleria. You're mm-hmm. going to be up in... I'm going to be at Modern Times Bookstore as well on October 1st. I'm really looking forward to to that reading. I literally, I either walked or I took the bus. I took the 48 bus to go to all my 12 infusions. So that's going to be awesome. I mean, that, that bookstore is a stone's throw away from the hospital that saved my life and it back in my old hood. So yeah, Modern Times Bookstore, October 1st. Um, and then October 10th, I'm going to be reading at Orinda Books really lovely um, bookstore. Uh, there's going to be a farmer's market, I think, beforehand. So like very nutritious afternoon potentially for people, you know, get your food and then get your food, you know, at the bookstore. Yeah. So I got that reading too. But yeah, check it out on my website, com, and all the events will be listed there. Great. Thank you so much for joining us on KPFA. We also bring you information about some upcoming events that we think everyone should know about. This Saturday, August 29th, at Los Ensontles Cultural Arts Academy in San Pablo, Los Ensontles are hosting Los Compas. 
Los Compas is a crisp, energetic, favorite party band that has shaped a sound that embraces the diverse musical cultures that make up the Bay Area Latino community, cumbias, merengues, Tex-Mex, and salsa. The group is led by Miguel Govea, band leader, arranger, trumpeter, accordionist, vocalist, and recording artist, and one-time member of the seminal Chicano new song band Los Peludos. Food and drinks, and this event will be on Saturday evening on August 29th at Los Ensembles Cultural Arts Academy in San Pablo. Don't miss out on this evening of music and dancing with Los Compas. Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. Make sure to like us on our Facebook page. And also you can listen to past archives of our program at soundcloud.com slash Chronicles. Muchas gracias y buenas noches.